0: chapter twenty nine of the randolphs by pansy this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty nine the last of the randolphs the embarrassment did not lessen as the evening waned on the contrary when tom and dr preston came and the three gentlemen tried to converse with alfred the difference in culture and refinement of thought and feeling and above all in purity of language and high moral tone was even more painfully marked than before. Grace stood her ground bravely, and beyond the pallor of her face and the occasional half-nervous, half-timid appeals that her eyes made to Dr. Preston, she showed nothing of her feelings. Dr. Preston seemed to appreciate the appealing look. He tried patiently to draw the attention away from Alfred, and to interest the party in talk that would require only silence on the part of that young man— but mr harper chose to be merciless he kept up a steady fire of questions so direct as to require from alfred at least an attempt at answering and as his embarrassment grew upon him his blunders became more frequent and glaring until dr preston darted an angry glance at mr harper and seemed to feel that the misery had been carried far enough maria looking on studied the situation and began to comprehend that it was more complicated even than she had feared. There was no mistaking the anxious light in Dr. Preston's eyes, and the patient, manly way in which he tried to shield grace from pain. Besides, the grateful and pleading glances, which she seemed almost unaware that she gave him, told their pitiful story. "'It is all confusion,' said Maria within her heart, "'leaning wearily back on the pillow, which was always at her back. "'How glad I am that the responsibility of working it out "'and making the right and wise answer doesn't rest with me!' "'Something of this thought she expressed in low tones to Mr. Harper, "'when at last he gave up the effort to draw out the guest "'and retired to Maria's corner, "'while he allowed Tom and Dr. Preston to make the conversation general.' he looked down at her smiling quietly and yet you are the young lady who once courted and coveted responsibility and bore your part in life's tangle remarkably well maria smiled back that was before i had an idea that i was not responsible at all at least in the sense in which i used to put it i thought that all the plans and successes of this family at least hung in my hands and i worked so hard to prove it not only to myself but others, that you see it was necessary to take all work and influence and power of every sort away from me before I could be made to believe that the world would move on without me. How I fought over my lesson! And have only half learned it yet, I should say, if you have ignored all responsibility. Did you ever accomplish so much in the full possession of your powers as you have since you sat here?' Don't you know that you have responsibilities resting upon you now of three times the importance of those from which you were put aside? She looked up at him with her clear, full gray eyes. No, she said quietly, it is blessed not to have to agree with you. My feeling is utterly different. Work I have done, results have been shown to me, but the responsibility I have forever laid aside. I do now what my Master gives me whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Don't you remember how hard I tried to adopt that motto, before I understood the first letter of it? It is my motto now, and for all the rest of my life. Unquestioning obedience, just so far as the doing goes, but so far as the results are concerned, I think I have no business at all with any of them. Mine is the doing, when he says the word, but his is the bringing to pass." and that, you see, is the end of all worrying and planning and doubt. There is no rest nor comfort outside of that conclusion.' "'You are right,' he said, looking down at her with respectful eyes. "'You have learned in your quiet chair the lesson that we out in the world at work find it awfully hard to realize. Therefore much of the worrying and doubting is still my portion.' Whereupon he looked toward Grace and sighed. "'Doesn't that really worry you in the least?' he asked. "'Don't you think grace is the Lord's very own?' she asked him. "'Aye, I do indeed, with all my soul. "'Do you think when he said, "'All things work together for good to them that love God, "'that he meant it?' "'Yes,' he said after a moment's thoughtful silence. "'I think I have unquestioning faith in the truth "'that even our mistakes he will overrule for our good.' but because of that should we not be sorry for the mistakes of our lives that made rough leading necessary i think we should and are but are being sorry and worrying synonymous terms cannot i be sorry for the innumerable blunders of my headstrong girlhood and yet rejoice and even rest in the thought that the lord has forgiven and will lead then you think that with regard to gracie we may rest why, if the past blunders are to work together for good, should that not rest us? Those are not my words, you know. Your armchair has been a good teacher, he said, smiling. Then suddenly, as though the words had in some way grown out of the conversation, he added, tell me about your boys, do they come to you every Monday now? Maria's eyes brightened. Yes, she said, and I am doing them good, I know I am and, but for my blundering with poor Dick Norton, I should never have thought of it. Mr. Harper, do you know Dick? Has his life been a very forlorn one? Yes, said Mr. Harper, I know Dick. Thompson, I thought Norton was coming over with you this evening? I was to call for him at half-past eight, said Tom, glancing at his watch, and it is nearly that now. Maria, do you feel able to see him this evening?' and then he went at once to bring him. Maria, relieved by her invalidism from the necessity for talking unless she chose to do so, leaned back among her cushions and watched the play of feeling on the faces before her, and went back over the histories of each life and took in the changes. Ermina had not grown old, her face had the bright, fresh look of one whose life had never lost its bloom. Neither care nor trouble had come to age her, and strong, healthy work for human hearts had kept her fresh and vigorous. Helen's face had softened. All the lines were clear and tender. The worn look, the lines of impatient martyrdom, had passed away. In their place had come a vivid, glowing interest in life and in work, and a healthy certainty of feeling that Mr. Leonard and his views and plans and ways of work were infinitely superior to all others. He was the same strong-souled, vigorous man who had come for her five years before, and the boy was a match for them both. In Grace the change was more striking and startling than in any of the others, and, sitting beside Alfred, the contrast showed more vividly still that he too had changed, had grown coarser in feature and grosser in mind. What grand men they were, those others! And how like a pygmy he appeared by the side of them! It was not a pleasant subject, and she was willing to turn from it to meet Tom and her old friend Dick Norton. Time, and the many changes in herself, had removed all feeling of vexation at the folly of his youth, and she found herself eager to meet her old scholar again she made the mistake common to many people of forgetting that the five years had left their stamp upon him also and without realizing it whenever she thought of him she called up his image exactly as it had appeared to her the last time she saw him tall somewhat overgrown in fact with a shock of wiry hair that would never lie where its owner desired and with his ungainly figure arrayed in coarse and ill-fitting and ill-chosen garments "'What a contrast he will present to them all,' she said, glancing at the others, "'and yet he will be an improvement on that poor attempt at gentility.' She added this with a sort of pitying contempt. Then she turned to greet her old friend. "'Maria,' Tom said, "'this is your old acquaintance, Dr. Norton.' And Maria neither answered nor gave her hand in greeting. She simply stared. "'Dr. Norton!' who on earth could he be? Not certainly any one who had ever been known to her. This man was tall, finely formed, and finely dressed, that is, his dress was of the quiet kind which cannot be described, but which makes you instantly think of a gentleman. Moreover, his bow was easy and graceful, and his voice, as he said, Will you shake hands with an old acquaintance, Miss Randolph? was smooth and cultured you are not dick stammered forth maria at last the flush on her cheek deepening and her bewilderment rapidly becoming an embarrassment i am indeed the veritable dick though i have worked hard for the title behind which your brother has hidden me don't you remember me at all miss randolph and then they shook hands and tom seeing his sister's confusion hurried his friend away to meet the other members of the circle maria listened as one in a maze, to the talk that followed changes why none of them had so utterly bewildered her nor seemed so impossible to understand she watched the newcomer as he took his place in the circle with an assured air of one who was accustomed to the society of those who greeted him as their equal she listened to the animated talk in which owing to the fact that it fell upon some subject which he had lately examined he took the greater share. And as she listened, the strangeness did not diminish, though certain touches of tone and a sort of intensity of manner began to remind her of the Dick Norton that she had known, in the days that seemed suddenly to have receded into the very distant past. Tom came over to her for a bit of confidential talk. "'Why didn't you tell me?' she said reproachfully. "'I was never so amazed in my life.' They gave me a strange feeling, all these changes, as if I had suddenly lost my identity, and this were a new world, where the shadows of the people whom I used to know were gathering around me. "'What a ghostly scene it must be,' Tom said gaily. Then he proceeded to answering her question. "'Well, there are two reasons for my not talking of Dick to you. In the first place, I find that I had not the remotest idea that there had been such a development as there has.' I knew he was studying medicine. In fact, I knew that Dr. Preston went away with that idea in his mind. But for a long time, I regarded it as a freak of his, and a very unwise one. I thought nothing would come of it but disappointment for them both. Afterward, when I heard that Dick had become an indefatigable student, and that Dr. Preston believed that he was destined to distinguish himself in medicine... "'I thought it would be such a pleasant surprise to you that I would wait and give time a chance to do its work. But, mind you, I hadn't an idea that she worked so rapidly. I expected to see him improved, but nothing at all like this. He has actually graduated and commenced practice with Dr. Preston, and the doctor tells me that he is certainly destined to a brilliant career. Looking at him now, it isn't hard to credit the prophecy.' maria the best of it all is that he says he owes it all to you that he would to this day have been nothing but a streetcar driver earning his daily wages but for your helping hand that is nonsense maria said with a trace of her old vehemence of manner it was his forlorn reachings after a better place in the world that first suggested to me to help him no said her brother quietly You forget that you helped him about those shirts before he ever dreamed of such a thing as an aspiration. That shirt business was the most sublime reach that your genius ever took, Maria. Not a day passes, but I hear of some fruit.' Maria was laughing. It was a novel subject to call sublime, and it had its ludicrous side. But there were tears in her eyes. The fruit was certainly beyond anything that she had dreamed. "'Is he a Christian man?' she asked suddenly. "'Ay, that he is, a grand one,' Preston says, doing a splendid work in the city, and his headquarters are at the street-car stations, among the drivers and hostlers. Preston says not a man of them but knows him, and would give their lives to serve him. Think of that! Don't you see how you are working while you sit here?' At this point the young doctor abruptly drew his chair away from Mr. Leonard, with whom he had been talking, and came over to Maria's side. "'Will you tell me just what the different stages of your sickness have been?' "'What a formidable question to put to a girl who has been sick for five years,' she said with a serial-comic look at the earnest face. But he was evidently very much in earnest. He began a rapid fire of questions, clear, penetrating, and intensely professional.' Dr. Preston evidently caught the sound of familiar professional words, and came over to their side of the room, stationing himself behind Tom's chair, and listening intently. At last the new Dr. paused and looked up at him. "'Well, sir,' said Dr. Preston, "'what do you think?' "'I think that electrical treatment will restore her.' Maria turned suddenly and looked up in Dr. Preston's face, the sudden paling of her own revealing the keen eagerness of her desire to be in and of the world again, instead of being shut up within the two arms of her easy chair. Dr. Preston was a name well known in the medical world. He was one whose judgment was almost proof against mistakes, and if he did other than smile on this young enthusiast, if he even treated the sentence with a show of gravity, as though there might be something in it, Why then, indeed, she might almost begin to hope. Tom, too, had turned and was waiting for his answer. He did not keep them waiting. His voice was quick and firm. I have been thinking of the same thing. I have been listening with keen interest to your examination. I am almost sure you are right. It would be difficult to describe the state of eager excitement into which this simple sentence threw the circle. They had ceased their conversation and were listening. As a family, they were all in eager sympathy with his answer. They gathered around Maria and were so voluble in their exclamations of delight and of hopefulness that Dr. Norton, who had the air of one who had been called as a professional adviser and therefore had the care of the patient, peremptorily advised them not to excite themselves and weary her, but to wait and see. At this opportune moment Alfred Parks seemed to have determined that he had endured as long as he could the strain upon his nerves, and arose to leave. It was a somewhat embarrassing moment. Tom did not choose to act the part of host, and mr Randolph had not yet arrived. Mr Harper half arose, as one accustomed to act in his sister's stead, and then sat down again as Grace resolutely turned toward the hall door, as if to accompany her guest dr preston turned promptly toward them by the way mr parks he said did i hear you speaking of young wheeler where is he now and as he spoke he threw open the hall door a sudden and marked interest in young wheeler seemed to have come to him for he continued his questions following alfred and grace into the hall in the most natural manner possible and keeping the former engaged in answering while he selected his hat It was finally Dr. Preston who drew back the night latch and opened the door for him and bowed him from the steps. Utter silence filled the hall while Grace waited and he closed the door. Then he said, Gracie, are broken promises worse than false vows? Oh, Doctor, she answered while her cheeks glowed and her eyes burned painfully. It is all a bitter humiliation. I know, he said, But take care do not make it worse by adding false vows. Remember that. Remember that no early mistake can be righted by adding to it a later and a graver one. Then they went back to the sitting-room. I do not know that you are as interested in all these people as I am. Probably you are not. It is one thing to live lives right along with people and another to tell about lives after they have been lived but I really would like to tell you about the weeks and months that followed, about what blessed times this united family had together during the next month, about the vigorous way in which the two doctors entered upon the new treatment that was to do so much for Maria, about the number of times it became necessary for the young doctor to come up from New York to be sure that his directions were being carried out, and that the longed-for effects were being produced, about the new plans that were being developed for the Randolph house, so that they reached out far beyond the first hopes or even thoughts of the early days of the enterprise, plans in which our old friend, Peter Armstrong, took such an eager and practical interest, that the rest said of him laughingly, that the mantle of his namesake, Peter Bible, must surely have fallen upon him, such was the vim and zeal that he threw into the work. "'If I should lose him,' Tom said, looking after him one night, as, after having given a brief, rapid account of the day's grand results in the reaching out after tempted men, he rushed away to fresh work, "'If I should lose him, I am afraid I should give up the enterprise in awful grief and dismay. He is the most indefatigable fisher I ever met. Blessed be the day when his heart took in those words, "'I will make you fishers of men,' they will be the keynote to his life. Of all these things I have neither time nor space to tell you. I must just take you over months of time, down to a winter evening when there was a jubilee at the Randolph house, not the newly fitted-up hotel, but the family home. They were all gathered at the homestead, Helen unexpectedly back again from her western home, because everybody must come home to weddings. The wedding had been and the bridal pair were about starting on their journey. Of course you know it was Grace, and of course you know that the bridegroom was not Alfred Parks. That folly of her girlhood had to be atoned for as best she could, and, at the best, it left sore spots and a feeling of pain and shame at the thought, but the bridegroom was Dr. Preston. It was well that he was so good and so great and so patient a man, few would have borne with the folly of her early days with the spirit he had shown it was a discomfort a pain to feel that such a man had been defrauded of many a tender word and touch that should have been his own and that were wasted before the bride was old enough to feel their sacredness but it had righted itself at last as well at least as mistakes ever right themselves and now they lingered about that side piazza door "'looking wistfully after the carriage "'that bore away the youngest-born. "'Mr. Randolph walked to the end of the piazza "'and stood in the darkness and silence for a little. "'Then he walked back and said to Maria in a husky voice, "'It is hard to give up mother's baby.' "'That little mother was the name still "'that brought the tears to the fading eyes "'of this gray-haired man. "'Yes, he said this to Maria. "'She stood beside him in the doorway.' "'It is a wonderful thing to stand in a doorway "'when you are doing it for the first time in six years.' "'The new doctor's positiveness had been founded on wisdom. "'The dear dream was realized, and she could walk. "'Not too long,' an anxious voice said just behind her. "'My dear Maria, I don't want you to stand long at a time, "'not yet a while. "'Wait a little, and you will be able to stand as long as you want "'and to walk where you choose.' "'This is the first time I have been in the kitchen, you know,' she said, turning smiling eyes on familiar, yet unfamiliar, objects. "'I don't suppose you have any idea of how strange it all seems to me. Dick, I stood just there when that horrid boiler tipped over with me.' It was a strange place for sentiment, that winter kitchen, with the coffee boiler steaming on the stove, and the remains of the wedding feast strewn everywhere.' but they stood there for a long time, despite the caution, and went over many an old time that the familiar furnishings of that room brought back to them. "'I must go now,' Dr. Dick Norton said, as he looked at his watch. "'It will not do not to be in New York early in the morning. I shall have double duty now until Dr. Preston returns. Well, Maria, I shall be down by New Year's, and by that time I have strong hope that you can travel in safety.' A moment afterward, he went with a brisk step down the walk. Maria stood looking after him. Before the sound of his footsteps died away, Tom came up the same walk. He had been to look after the departing train that carried away the new bride. Dick will be late, he said. I hear the train whistling. Maria made no answer. Her brother paused in the cheery little winter kitchen and looked at her searchingly then he reached forth his hand after hers. "'The last of the Randolphs?' he said inquiringly. "'Don't, Tom,' she said laughing, though there were tears in her eyes. "'You don't intend to commit suicide, do you? I am sure you are a Randolph.' "'But you intend to take care of Dick's Buttons for the rest of your days? "'Is that so? I was sure of it. Well, let me see.' Didn't you once tell me that Dick was the first fruit of your first attempt to follow out the teachings of your whatsoever? It was the golden rule, too, wasn't it? How grand it is that you taught him to follow its teachings also, Maria. The story of the leadings of the Randolph family would make a book, wouldn't it? And you see, dear friends, it has. End of chapter twenty nine. End of the Randolphs by Pansy. Thanks for listening.